BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. One more time, we got to celebrate, man. Gonna stop the dancing now. One more time, gonna celebrate. Fuck it, spank it, lick it, touch it, wink it, wank it, boob it, touch it, do the thing, and fucky work it. Unbelievable. Right? (laughs) It is me, a robot, and I am your wizard, Holden McNeely. I found a girl, I found a girl. (laughs) Whoa, where's the girl? Where'd you find that girl? (laughs) Hi, it's me, unsettling Daft Punk cover artist, Jake Young. (laughs) Yikes. I'm kind of doing a Weird Al thing, but nobody's laughing. That's like kind of my deal. (laughs) Yeah, because it's not really a punchline. You just found a girl, and now we're just very concerned about this girl. <laughs> so you just okay. So you're a cover musician of Daft Punk, but you just do all the music parts. Yeah, it's it's a single acapella Daft Punk <laughs> cover where I change. You're a barber shop. Single barbershop quartet. Yes. It's a barbershop soloist <laughs> performing Daft Punk. I'm gonna fight for suck sucky. Yeah, yeah, it's that you get it. You get my I'm gonna incredible. fight for suck sucky. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. What is this this begin what is the how do what is this the way to start this episode? I'm sorry. I'm giving you comedy gold and you are asking about my methods. <laughs> I'm not a music. Let me just get this let me just get this <laughs> right off I the bat. I can tell by your barbershop solo <laughs> interpretation of Daft Punk's greatest hits. Uh I am not an EDM head and we could spend actual years of our lives trying to wrap our heads around this. So before anybody gets like really mad at me, uh, I don't know what an arpeggio is. I don't know what phase shifting is. I don't know what a noise gate is. I don't know the difference between <laughs> uh, Chicago house and an English house. I don't know the difference between jungle. I don't know the difference between uh, anything or anything. I have no. What about your favorite model view. of talk box? Which talk box do the you like? What Roland ghetto blaster Skips- do you prefer? <laughs> Uh, yeah, indeed. Uh, for sure, when it comes to the details of the electronics here, uh, it might be a little trickier for us. But what we do know is the Daft Punk fucking rules, mm-hmm. and they changed the face of EDM as we now know it. I did not realize that until I did this episode. I thought that they were just a big part of the wave. But no, them coming out in Coachella in 2006 in that gigantic pyramid with that crazy light show and those giant helmets on actually is why you get 
a version of that at every single EDM show or festival or what have you from Vince forth. And that that is huge. And not only that, mumble rappers, yeah. SoundCloud rappers, like people making music in their bedroom. That was initially pioneered by Daft Punk. There's so many amazing uh, things that they've done for music, for entertainment. I'd say we're kind still of in the kind of uh, synth, disaffected, disco, techno, like dreamscape sure. sound that Daft Punk kind of uh, introduced to the world through stuff like Random Access Memories and Discovery. Uh, you know, like this entire vibe, this a- electronic, analog, wistful past is like a very much alive and well uh, for in a increasingly digital age, it's kind of um, the their trajectory from these technical tinkerers to just producing heart and soul like funky disco based music from their youth. Yeah, is kind of fascinating. If I can gush for a hot second, give me that gush. Pour that gush all over me. Make me sweat for it. Shit! How do I incorporate that into a Daft Punk song? That was brilliant, Holden. I got to remember <laughs> that one. <laughs> The opening few videos for the Interstellar anime uh, visual companion to Discovery was premiered on Toonami in a series of like special events at like midnight in, I believe it was like around 2001 uh, or 2000. And I stayed, I was like a diehard for Adult Swim and Toonami at the time. You know, I was watching Gundam Wing. I loved Tom and this like insane retro soundscape with the accompanying animation just like blew my mind every new chapter every new song drop just like shook me to my core and i immediately got discovery when it came out i think i bought it on itunes if you want to get a a time and place put it on the old ipod and or no it wasn't an ipod yet maybe it was a diamond rio the point is that album still like sends me back to a very specific time and place. I think it's maybe one of the most perfect pieces of music ever made the way that it just is this hodgepodge of like a lost era of sound and emotion that um, it's like, it's not even my childhood. Like it's all like 70s shit, but like as an eighties baby, I still feel like a weird uh, connection to it. Like if I had an older sibling, it would be their shit that I'd be listening to. Like, I still feel a connection Mm -hmm. to it. And Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that it kind of changed the game and sent all these reverberations through music for the next 25 years is fascinating, is incredible. Yeah, to watch their whole... The whole way they've moved through music through the years um, and now knowing how ahead of the game they were on certain things is really been awesome to watch. Like the mic drop epilogue, like breakup thing that happened out of nowhere in 2021 was amazing. Before that, random access memory coming out and, you know, them having the a couple of the songs of the summer that year and not being able to escape Get Lucky or Lose Yourself to Dance, you know, and having that just be... Everywhere, I think for me, my first experience. You know, I was I was definitely like dabbling with the EDM um, when I was younger. I mean, not that it's all drug stuff, but I will say I was never like an ecstasy guy. I've never been to like a rave. I've never, you know, I think I saw some live EDM stuff when I went to Bonnaroo uh, in that late night kind of tent situation. But 
never really been to like a big. Uh, I saw Diplo once at an Adult <laughs> Swim up front, and that was kind of fun. We had fun. He did Old Town Road right when Old Town Road came uh-huh. out. So we had fun, uh, but. In general, like I'm, I'm not huge in the scene either, Jake, um, and I'm not huge into the tech either. But what I will say is, I was a giant music video fan, and you know, I had those Spike Jones and Michelle Gondry, uh, you know, compilation music video DVDs. So I definitely had Daft Punk playing <laughs> at my house. We had, you know, <laughs> we was had, that an LCD sound system callback? Yes, that's the LCD sound system callback. You, you, you get at least one. Maybe we'll have a couple more later on in this episode. But yeah, uh, I definitely had Around the World and Defunk uh, blasting in my apartment, hanging out with friends. I just throw those DVDs on all the time when I would just had some people over and we were just chilling and wanted something on in the background that we could kind of stare at um, And uh, when we realized we were too high to talk. Uh, and I had an appreciation since then, for, for sure. Random Access Memory comes out. Like I said, Song of the Summer, kind of impossible to avoid it. You're like, wow, these guys are like monoliths of <laughs> what they do. You know, the, the fact that they were able to pull together so many incredible talents just to make that record. And we'll get into that in the future. And also how analog that thing is, uh, even though these guys are known for their synths and samplers and loops. And... So it's really, it was really like kind of a, a pretty amazing stuff to see come from this group and, and their whole aesthetic, right? Like the music videos that went along with the, those newer records, them at like the Grammys mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and, and the idea that like you don't really see them without their helmets off. You don't know, you know, they're, they're committed so fully to the character like that for me, it's, you know. They're committed to the character, to like the lack of character that like the yeah. robots do not speak. They don't even like pantomime. They don't really have distinctive personality. They're just kind of there just as as physical vessels for this music you enjoy. And it's kind of freeing. It's kind of, you know, it's a kind of uh, liberation that uh, nowadays when especially mass market music is so tied to personality where you have to follow their Instagram. You know when they're having a messy breakup. You know uh, when one of them's uh, getting uh, into drama with Pete Davidson, you know, like all this crazy shit that, uh, you know, they were kind of like, even though it was this kind of punk aesthetic, this, this uh, just blatant hostility to the music industry, every Uh step of their career, it proved to be kind of a wise decision. Like it kind of is an incredible thing while still, uh, kind of brilliantly providing some kind of visual hook, providing some kind of recognizable aesthetic upon which they could continue to be a mass market band. Like they can show up in a gap advertisement. They can show up in a specialty release of Coca-Cola. They, you know, they can still be a major label uh charting artist but they don't have to give any of their soul to the public in order to do it it's kind of brilliant and also though it's kind of amazing how they have stuck to their guns while for the longest time not getting their due for a very long time and being kind of the edm in general being like the bastard stepchild of music and the music (laughs) industry this thing that people look down upon and i think my big resurgence with them actually came more recently when uh, a pitchfork the um album review site they they 
did something kind of goofy, and I think people piled on them for even doing this in the first place. But it definitely got me to go listen to that album for the first time, like front to back. They re-reviewed, they, they re-scored a bunch of mm. albums they felt they made a mistake on. It was like 20 albums or something like that, and they were like, hey, we fucked up here. Sometimes they would give them a lower score. They actually gave Random Access Memories a lower score <laughs> than they had originally given, which I think was bullshit, honestly. I, that album's fantastic. It's good. I just got it on vinyl. I love it so much. It's so, I think it's so, I think it's so beautiful, that that record. But regardless, um, before Jake gives us his mean opinions about random access memories i just want to say you know they 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 scored initially discovery mm-hmm. which i think is their greatest album uh definitely their greatest studio album alive 2007 might take it a little bit but that's their uh, live release alive 2007 is incredible because like even the things you didn't like from their previous albums they like they like somehow make elevate you like it. it yeah yeah, they like force you to fucking love it. So, so yeah, when, when they rescored it from it like a six point four to like a to a ten mm-hmm. to a perfect score, which got even crazy, right? And that's what got me. I was like, wow, okay, let me let me check this out. And I did truly enjoy the hell out of it, and was like, yeah, this is fantastic. I would love to throw this on, hanging out with people, and this that and the other. And there's so many like now regarded classics like One More Time and Harder, Faster, Stronger. Um, but uh, you know, it was funny, and it was the douchiest. Review review too if you go read that original review it is so snooty it's like they just repeat the same thing and they're not even saying anything they're just saying you know what i mean it's so like it's so just like you don't fucking get what this is and what this music is about and what this whole scene is is trying to be about well if it and wasn't i do for believe yeah discovery disre- is amazing i mean I'm, so, I'm sorry i was being a talkie over johnny and i <laughs> want to apologize i want to and i was being a passive aggressive patty mm. and i was thinking mean things about you. All right, like I'm going to gently press you. my lips against the webcam and I want you to do the same. This is our okay. sorry kiss. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny that pissy reviews are like a weird driving force for them because when we get into the history, it is kind of uh, just a weird, yeah. a weird thing that it, it all started with them just being like, ah, fuck this, fuck this, and just yeah. like going off on their own. Yeah, we'll explain a little bit how they got their name from a shitty review. It, it's, uh, which again, it just the way that they've stuck to their guns, I think the big moral of the story for me, first of all, did not realize like how much they pioneered EDM, the live scene, everything. Didn't, and then on top of that, huge, huge respect for them after doing this episode. They stuck to their guns. They did They did whatever they wanted, when they wanted, and their ambitions were high. And they would sink a lot, almost always, they were sinking their own money mm-hmm. into, I think, pretty much always. I don't yes. know a time when they weren't sinking their own money in. And, when, and by that, I mean like, all of their own money. Like, they weren't, they were insane with that. And they made... Deals where they lost money in the deal just to have more control over what they were putting out and over their art. And I mean, every like talk about you're about to hear a story about artistic integrity to the nth degree. And so it's definitely one of those episodes I did where like I only respect them more from doing this. I like have lost no respect in any facet. And um, I just totally look up to them as artists now, as well as understand now I have that respect now for what they did to change. I mean, no EDM festival as we know it would be what it is without 
the shit that they did on the live scene. It's really cool. And that, I can't I wait think, to get into well, it. Well, then you're, ke- you're, you're you keyed into what I think is the core thrust of like uh, this episode, which is if you look at these two dudes in robot costumes and you think, who are these dumb gimmick? What is this dumb gimmick act? Yes, they have a gimmick, but that gimmick bought them pure artistic freedom on a level yeah. that like no other Grammy mus- stage musician you've ever heard of could. Yeah. And that like weird Ouroboros of the gimmick, like this, like having a visual thing to make yourself seem appealing without actually having to be appealing, without having to lower yourself while still giving, while still having a, a gimmick, like was a brilliant chess maneuver. They literally yeah. like did a judo throw on the entire without music human, industry. Hey, without becoming human, humanizing themselves, mm-hmm. right? Like that. That's really what it. The 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 trick there, right? Like they're these these icons, mm-hmm. and, and and under this iconography, they're able to put out all this music and do all these great things with their art, and they never have to be Guy Manuel. They never <laughs> have to be Tomas, like up there on stage or you know outside outside of it. I I mean, they're revealing in interviews, by the way. Thank fucking god <laughs> they they talk about the you know the the back end of everything for sure and we'll have some really good quotes and things like that because of that thank you guys because that would have been too much if they were like mums the word on everything but for the most part they just really understand how to separate the art from the artist themselves mm-hmm. and i think that's like an incredible feat that they've pulled off and maybe why they decided to call it in 2021 because they were like all right we gotta yeah i'm done with this <laughs> which i i to all again all respect so here we go daft punk Daft Punk were a French electronic music duo formed in 1993 in Paris by Thomas Bangalter and Guy Manuel de Homem Cristo. So Holden, right off the bat, uh, if you're talking, if you're in the know, but their French names should be pronounced Thomas and Guy Manuel and Guimon. Guimon is how they referred to him. And uh, for the record, uh, Thomas is the taller robot with the horizontal visor. And Gimon is the shorter robot with the vertical kind of dome or dome shaped helmet. Yeah, and they, and they also their approach complements each other. I was trying to remember who we recently did an episode on that kind of had the same thing, and that would probably be the Cuphead brothers. Mm-hmm. And that one person is is more on the tech end of things; the other one's kind of more on like the loose kind of like the more vision. floaty vision artsy kind of end. And I feel like that is exactly what you need when it comes to like an artistic team, two-person team. Uh, And they emerged as part of the French house movement in the late 90s. They became one of the most influential acts in dance music history as they melded multiple musical genres together to create acclaim through the years. So here we go. Let's start with Guy uh, and Thomas uh, meeting in secondary school in Paris in 1987 at the age of 12. They both had an interest in media from the 70s, stuff like the film Easy Rider and the band The Velvet Underground, The Beach Boys, and Andy Warhol films. I think especially the way that Andy Warhol created a world of art. Mm-hmm. So he's putting out um, his pop art, he's making these films, he's forming The Velvet Underground, and they're not they're all swarming around together to create this giant overall aesthetic that's not just one thing. Bangalter's father was uh, strict about his son practicing piano starting at the age of six, uh, something he would thank him later for, probably not at the time, though. Uh, his father was also a songwriter and producer for various acts as well in his own right. Right, Jake? Uh, yes, he produced and uh, performed uh, dance music in the 70s, uh, around, which is ironic, because like when you go back and listen to their music, 
what kind of one of their main accomplishments as a group is taking this very harsh world of house music and like 90s dance music. And that was kind of almost in response to the glitz and uh, glamour of the discotheque and kind of uh, bringing back a little bit of that soft funk and and do it and, you know, tapping into a longing that a lot of people had. Um, it should be noted that uh, they were. Yeah. You said they met at uh, uh, school, the Lycée Corneau. Uh, secondary school in Paris. Uh, literally, they were like hanging out underneath uh, like a central structure designed by Gustave Eiffel. Like, you know, they were just like French as fuck, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> Alter said, Guy Manuel recorded mixtapes for me. That was how we started hanging out. Oh, by the way, just hear this in a thick French accent. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sit here and mock the French or anything like that by going, I'm not going to do that, Jake. Okay. We're going to keep it. We're going to keep it right on the money. Can here. I get one? Ha ha ha. Just ha ha ha. I'm Fat Albert. <laughs> Fat Albert. <laughs> Big Alter said Guy Manuel recorded mixtapes for me. That was how we started hanging out. He listened to Jimi Hendrix and The Doors, but we were more interested in films than music. Each week we went to the movies. We rewatched The Lost Boys several times. I liked the teenage vampires in that movie. They had nice leather jackets, and in the cave where they lived, there was a large poster of Jim Morrison. Cool. <laughs> Together with drummer uh, Laurent Brancolia, uh, they formed an indie rock group called Darlin'. This was actually named after a Beach Boys song that they also covered in the band. This group did not last long, as Bangalter, who played bass in the band, said, quote, it was still maybe a more a teenage thing at the time. It's like, you know, everybody wants to be in a band. They did receive a negative review uh, that gave them their namesake this later is weird. on. This is weird to me. Uh, so, yeah, Darlin was a trio um, and, uh, yeah, they had like literally two songs, a cover of Darlin and another original, uh, thing they ended, uh, and they got put on a compilation for duophonic records, the, uh, English label that was founded by the band stereo lab, which is like insane. Like who signs a three French teenagers with only two songs to a, to a, to a label. What the fuck? Like if, like, I, I listen to them. They're like not, you know, it's mm-hmm. just a it's a teen punk band. It's it's just kind of like whatever. How maybe earth- small small pond, maybe? Maybe. I don't know. But yes, the somebody did uh, I believe for Melody Maker magazine reviewed the compilation on which uh Darlin made their uh debut. And uh, Holden, you got to tell them. Describe their sound as, quote, a daft, punky thrash. And so they took that negative, turned it into a positive. The two guys then fall off from indie rock, and they start experimenting with synthesizers, drum machines, and electronic music. This was around 1992, when they discovered this new form of music, according to uh, Thomas. It was a rave in Central Pompidou. Andrew Weatherall was DJing. People danced without knowing any of the songs. That's still the thing that I appreciate the most in clubs. The music is something you step into to feel good, not something bland being chopped up into five-minute chunks by people with electric guitars. So, shots fired, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> before you get sad for uh, the the third guy who yeah. was in, who was, could have been the Pete Best of Daft Punk, the guy who walked <laughs> away... Not realizing that, uh, you know, 
his bandmates went on to become international superstars. The uh, guitarist and drummer for Darlin' was actually uh, Laurent Brankowitz, uh, yeah. who later became the guitarist for Phoenix, which, if you remember, a little song called Listomania, like a ride, like a rhino, not easily <laughs> offended. Like, he did just, just fine. Acapella, he did every, just All the music fine. for this episode. He did great. Phoenix is a huge indie act, like yeah. massively popular. Definitely when I was in Brooklyn in the <laughs> late 2000s and uh, early 2020s. 2020s? 2010s. Uh, fun fact, I actually have uh, Phoenix and uh, Vampire Weekend in my basement right now with a single knife and a loaf of bread, and whoever emerges wins. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all-new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. So they were drawn to this new form of music saying this was more energetic. People were smiling. Then we discovered Det- the Detroit and Chicago stuff. And that's when they started exploring electronic acts such as Primal Scream and The Orb. And I think that is what we need to recognize here in terms of their strong influence. Like huge love of music from the 70s in general, disco, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Also, though, American electronic music influence on them who are over in Europe also getting fed all of that stuff. And I think that's why we get this really palatable, especially in America, sound, mm-hmm. right? It's got this this warmth to it. It's got guitars. It's got, you know, they're, they're vibing on a bunch of different things that I feel like just played really well in the West, which is how electronic music gets brought over uh, or it gets expanded, I at least, I think, in America because of their sound. Yeah, it's a very weird thing where, like, because, again, we are. I am fully unequipped to talk about this, but, like, the English house music scene, which was born from, like, industrial, like, desolation and, like, uh, you know, uh, just sweaty dudes and with buzz cuts, like, just drinking lager and, like, bobbing their heads in a dark warehouse... Uh-huh. Uh, the drugs, uh, you know, people like discovering samples, people discovering old drum machines and synthesizers and literally just plugging shit into other shit and looping and just like creating dynamic new sounds uh, in a kind of veil of anonymity. It was actually kind of built into the uh, dance scene in the house scene that you were just there to get the party started. Nobody was actually looking at the DJ. Yeah. You like you figured like uh, I believe a line from the Unchained documentary that was released a couple years back was like when you went to an EDM performance like you weren't you turned your back to the DJ. The yeah. DJ was not the point. Yeah, kind of like disco, right? Yeah. In, in in a lot of ways for sure. So yeah, from here Daft Punk has formed um credit for the logo went to Gee. 
And together, they do a demo that they end up getting into the hands of Stuart McMillan, one half of the DJ duo Slam and founder of Soma Quality Recordings. They actually met him at a rave at Euro Disney in September of 1993. Very bizarre and, detail, I gotta say. I know, right? And they handed him that uh, that demo like on at, while, while at this uh, rave. And this demo was then released via McMillan as, quote, the new wave in 1994, which included a final mix of the track, which was called alive later on on their first album homework it was around this time that they also got a manager named pedro winter who was a promoter for them at his hype nightclubs and a dj in his own right who went by the name of busy p he would end up being their manager up until i believe 2008 so i mean hugely hugely a part of their career uh, upward career trajectory In 1995, they managed to get into the studio to record one of their biggest uh, initial hits, Da Funk. This was uh, uh, definitely what put them on that map initially. However, this was not so quite at first. It was actually the Chemical Brothers who started spinning their record, Da Funk, at their live shows. And this is what got them a little bit more attention in the EDM community. Bangalter said, It was around the time Warren G's Regulate was released, and we wanted to make some sort of gangster rap and tried to murk our sounds as much as possible. However, no one was has ever compared it to hip-hop. We've heard that the drums sound like Queen and The Clash. The melody is reminiscent of Giorgio, uh, Giorgio Moroder. And the synthesizers sound like Electro and thousands of other comparisons. No one agrees with us that it sounds like hip-hop. I think it sounds like hip-hop. Uh, why don't we hear a little bit of Da Funk? Well, I mean, it's short notice, Holden, but okay. Now, please, we got to hear the real stuff this okay. time. April, hit it! Uh, you may remember the music video. Check it out. Spike Jones with that dog that walks around, that dog man that walks around with the boom box with the tragic story of of love and loss. Um, Which it's was video. also very key because this was during a very powerful time in MTV's history where a good music video could get your name out there and set oh, you yeah. apart. And the music video is basically a short film. Like the dog man carries around a boom box playing defunct the entire time but throughout several parts of the music video the music will almost be turned down to barely audible as we're following this dog man story it's like longer than most music videos it's more contemplative it really plays more like a short film and so if you were tuning into mtv at midnight you know drunk on some uh, natty lights like this would stand out to you it would break your rhythm and kind of make you lean in and go like wait what's going on on my tv well, screen I'm more of a beast guy jake but yes i will agree with that and say that this is initially i think where that andy warhol velvet underground influence is kicking in it's like let's look at this like a media empire let's look at this multimedia multifaceted so the duo signed with virgin but in exchange for more control over their work they had to finance everything themselves with their 
first album being recorded in a studio of their own making called Daft House in Paris. And by studio, I mean Bang Alter's bedroom. Straight up, one of the first, I think this is tech, you know, I'm sure you might be able to hit me up and be like, this dude did it in his bedroom before. But it generally known as like one of the first major, you know, like big kind of hit albums that came out of like a home recording. Bang Alter said, we've got much more money uh, control than money. You can't get everything. We live in a society where money is what people want. So they can't get the control. We chose. Control is freedom. People say we've, we're control freaks, but control is controlling your destiny without controlling other people. I believe it's uh, the, the deal that they made was basically they gave up royalties for their songs for the first 10 years uh, in exchange for final ownership of the original masters, which is a like very long game kind of thing. Uh, supposedly it was uh, Bang Alter's father, Daniel, who worked in the record industry that was like, okay, boys, this is what you're going to do. This is what they're going to try and make you do. Don't do that. This is like where the actual, like, uh, this is how they're going to fuck you. Ask for this instead. And that was vital and kind of gave them this very holistic, long view of where their career and where their music is going to take them that most artists signing with a big label for the first time just cannot even conceive of because they've been broke musicians their entire lives. And all of a sudden, Johnny Bigwig is like, hey, kid, here's my giant cigar. How about you? I give you 50 pennies. <laughs> yeah, and the cigar has a face and a mouth, and it's like mocking you the whole time, mm-hmm. too. I hate that guy. It starts firing uh, projectiles at you as well as traps from the floor. I'm just a Spike Jones, uh, the direct, the music video director, said they were doing everything based on how they wanted to do it, as opposed to, oh, we got signed to this record company, we got to use their plan. They wanted to make sure they never had to do anything that would make them feel bummed on making music. Bang Alter confirms all this, saying everybody does it now, but homework was completely done in a very small bedroom. It's mixed on a small ghetto blaster, selling millions of al- al- albums recorded that way is something new. Uh, he also goes on to compare to a, the subject of a different episode of ours on this show, Blair Witch Project, saying, you know, they had these people in the woods mm-hmm. with handheld you know, cameras and very small production and almost no money, and it ends up selling out in theaters all over the country and being this like massive blockbuster hit. And it changed the way people looked at filmmaking, and, and that was sort of what they did with homework. And their plan initially was just to release a bunch of singles, and it was just one of those situations where they're like, oh, we actually have a shitload of tracks here. Let's just put together an LP. So there's not some unifying theme or t- uh, to the work in this case, uh, unlike possibly what would come later. Listening to homework for the, like, for, you know, besides just defunct and around the world, uh, I was kind of amazed how much of it is kind of just down the middle house tracks. Like, yeah. A lot of just thumping bass and like driving beats and just, mm-hmm. you know, you can dance to it. But, you know, it, it lacked that kind of wistful, imaginative magic that I was like, you know, associating with Daft Punk up until that point. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and and that's why the standouts are around the world and defunct, right? Mm-hmm. They kind of just have a little extra splash and show you kind of the direction that Daft Punk are going to take. Of course, it's called, home, if you haven't put it together by now, homework, called homework because 
made it at home. Uh, the first track, Daft and Direct, is pulled from a live show they did in Belgium, and it helped set the stage for a slew of live performances based off of the LP release. They started out actually performing without masks. Then they would rotate masks out. They would put stuff on like Beavis and Butthead masks or clown masks, but there was no specifics here. It wouldn't until be until Discovery that they create this robot aesthetic. I believe the rule was initially uh, they would perform without masks and you could take a photo of them while they were just behind the turntables. But if you were like for a magazine or, you know, if you needed to like take a press photo of them, they had to wear a mask. And they're yeah, it was completely non-standard. Like uh, there's stories of them on the road where their manager would have to just like run into a dollar store at the last minute because somebody from the press showed up and they didn't have a mask handy. <laughs> Uh, and I know we talked a little bit about warmth before, but I think we can really, if you're trying to figure out like what made them stand apart back then and why they were so special initially, I think it was because they came from a rock background. Uh, and uh, Bangalter had this to say about it. A lot of electronic music is very cold. Rock has a certain warmth. That is a good thing about it. And soul and funk and disco, too. We were not interested in doing really dark music. Our music is not stupid happy house, but it makes people happy. Their other big single besides the funk, of course, around the world. This was heavily inspired by a disco band um, that would come into play for Random Access Memories later on, a band called Chic. Mm. Michelle Gondry, who did an amazing music video for the song. If you have not seen this music video, I absolutely love it. It is one of my favorites ever. Um... And uh, he had this to say about the process. I realized how genius and simple the music was. Only five different instruments with very few patterns, each to create numerous possibilities of figures, always using the repetition and stopping just before it's too much. And so for the video, if you haven't seen it before, Gondry has five different groups dancing, representing a different part of the song. The robots move to the singing voice, the athletes, as he refers them, those weird like baby-headed yeah. Frankenstein football players, uh, they're the, they represent the bass guitar the disco girls represent the keyboard uh i believe the, they look like they're like uh swim yeah synchronized they look like swimmers, they're wearing right? swim caps the skeletons are the guitar line and the mummies are the drum machine and it is so cool and one of the things i really appreciated about this that i didn't think about especially back in the day but it still happens today you know those uh you know, there was always like a synchronized dance sequence uh, a big choreographed rather dance sequence in those in all those music videos like in the you know we're talking about the era of like mm -hmm. you know just big pop stuff happening in, in the late 90s yeah, early yeah. 2000s Quick cuts, lots of angles lots of set pieces and Gondry never loved how they were edited and chopped up it was always like way too close up and constantly cutting away and if you notice in the around the world video it's really given this space to breathe the shots are all wide you can really see the dancing it, it, it lingers and when it cuts it'll still be a pretty wide shot giving you the ability to actually see the choreography and experience it as if it was like at a live show or something like that and it really does make that video stand apart once again on in the in, the documentary was basically my main source for a lot of my uh for my research this week uh michelle gondry talks about how they had to buy motorcycle helmets on the cheap to provide the spaceman helmets and then he personally modded them with a uh, one-way reflective tape and little antennas and like worked hard to get all the helmets done in time for the shoot and he uh very heavily suggests like and so it's interesting you know because i made one of their most standout visual uh signifiers uh the spaceman helmets and then when it was time 
for them to unveil their new look. Uh, what do you know? They made a bunch of spaceman helmets. I'd like to think I did that. I, you know, I kind of did that. And I was like, God damn, Michelle. <laughs> All right. So based off the success of their first album, Homework, they both create their own record labels to release side stuff. Uh, they do stuff with Friends and Solo as well. Thomas uh, created Roule and Guise was Sidramul. Uh, Guy also put out music as a member of Le Night Club mm-hmm. and Bang Alter was part of Together and Stardust and put out music with those groups as well. So immediately they were doing all sorts of stuff and they're, they're going to go off and produce tons of stuff. I even realized this, that they did a bunch of production work for big hit albums we'll talk about in the future. So but. What, what's really funny to me is that like two of the biggest dance hits that I remember from that era, I didn't even realize were Daft Punk at the same time. Uh, you know, the the music sounds better with you. Uh-huh. Music. That one is Stardust. And that was, yeah, one of uh, Tomas's side project. And this is a crazy story. They actually did a whole ass. Uh, there's a great YouTube essay that you can find that breaks down how all of this happened. But uh, the dance hit. Uh, by Eric Prides that was like, call on me if you love yeah. me, call on me. That me. one was yeah, a Thomas yeah. Bangalter uh, track that he just couldn't uh, get yeah. the rights for and he didn't want to release, but like bootlegs of it started leaking out and getting radio play. And so some other DJ kind of just swooped in and officially released the track and got the royalties for it, which is like, just so, like, even when he's not even, like, doing Daft Punk shit, he's still making it on the charts with his songs, uh-huh. which I find truly incredible. Yeah, they just had the gift, man, it seems. Uh, and this would uh, be the best representation of that gift. The next album, their uh, their incredible classic, Discovery. Bangalter said, We were doing a track and our sampler crashed. This was in an interview around the time it came out, uh, I should say, uh, that, that kind of where they're establishing what would be their identity moving forward. We were doing a track and our sampler crashed and exploded and there were sparks. We were hurt a little bit, so we had to make a little surgery and then we became robots. Everything was erased. We had to start all over again. We don't keep a record of the time when we make music. Later, Homem Cristo uh, would explain the more ground reason for the approach. We wanted to draw a line between public life and private life. We didn't understand why it should be obligatory to be on the covers of magazines as yourself when you are making music and are not a showman. And also, though, as you can see, they're saying, like, everything was erased. We had to start over again. You know, Discovery really does speak towards a childlike discovery of music. I think the idea was these robots have been rebooted and they're discovering music for the first time and putting it together and that wonder and curiosity and excitement is all wrapped up, rolled into this album. Uh, This was again recorded at Daft House in Paris and work started on it in 1998 with the release happening in 2001. So they took their time. They, by the way, used the same equipment that they used from the first album, keeping it very simple. Minimalism is a word that I see a lot as I'm researching this topic. Mm-hmm. It is definitely simplicity, minimalism. Which is interesting is you think the le- that's the opposite of what you think when you think of like you know intense like EDM <laughs> composition and everything. But the, I think that's again what made them kind of rise above was that they had this sound that you could really click into even 
if you weren't, you know, connected to any kind of uh, scene or anything like that. It's also weird to think about all the kids growing up listening to these Daft Punk albums and going to these uh, shows of theirs. And like when they get their hands on all with uh, on this equipment, they have way more compute power and way more sampling capabilities. And, you know, they're the uh, the barriers for them are so much uh, shorter and easier to climb that you end up with like the kind of Skrillex dubstep maximalist sound. Uh-huh. Now that like all the limiters are off and they don't have to track down these archaic pieces of equipment and fiddle with a million knobs just to get a specific loop that they're looking for. Um, the uh, I think we mentioned this before, but like uh, apparently Toma was obsessed with the idea of the Y2K bug around this time. Oh, and so the idea of like society and technology all Just coming like to this like reset crescendo inspired him to reset their public persona as well with uh cuz the 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 division seems to be that Toma was the technical guy. Toma was the mm. guy tracking down these machines and trying out new uh sounds and like focusing on the technical bits whereas uh Gimon was the like punk guy that was like don't give him a fucking inch like and you know like you <laughs> said in the different quotes like one was about having a funny robot story and the other was about this is how they don't fuck us. <laughs> the mm-hmm. uh masks themselves were actually designed fairly early on in the process while they were recording stuff. Um, they actually brought the designs to uh, uh, a uh, engineer named Tony Gardner, who worked out in L.A. They had to, uh, it was a goal originally to make sure that the helmets didn't quite look, like they didn't look like Halloween costumes, they looked like actual robot heads. Uh, and so also they wanted to incorporate the, at the time, very interesting and new technology of LED lights to kind of give themselves like extra features and display capabilities. Uh, but they basically had to do uh, movie VFX like prosthetic work to like get perfect molds of their heads so that the helmets could be clamped on extra tight around them. Uh, and I think the effect is really good. If you look at Tomas's helmet, uh, you know, it fits like a perfect glove. It doesn't look like he's just wearing a mascot head. It looks like he has a robot head. And that's because those things are custom fit to his actual skull. Um, supposedly, after a couple of years, they did eventually incorporate ventilators into the masks. But until that point, they it was apparently suffocatingly hot in those things whenever they had to do uh, live appearances. Um, the... Uh, Another weird fact about the masks is that uh, they weren't even built yet when production started on Interstellar 555. They had to send the designs over to the animation studio. And like as soon as they sent them over, they're like, "Okay, I guess that's finalized. Um, One other thing is that supposedly and there are design sketches that confirm this. Uh, the robots were supposed to wear like glam wigs above the helmets to give them like a weird human robot fusion vibe. Mm. And before they posed for their official debut photo shoot with the helmets and gloves, they uh, just ripped them off at the last second thinking it would look dumb. Oh, thank God, (laughs) because it would look dumb. The biggest hits for this album would be the opening track and lead single One More Time, as well as Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. I don't think they're... If I had to make a playlist of the most joyous tracks Mm -hmm. of all time, I think One More Time would have to exist on that playlist, April. Uh, And by April, I mean Jake. Hit it! Wait, which song? (laughs) 
<laughs> one more time. One. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Ah, that was terrible. One more time. All right. And actually, though, we're going to give you the real track because it'll be much more satisfying while you're in your car right now. April, hit it. One more time. During the many recording sessions for the album, the duo started to conceive of a feature film. At first, uh, it was a live-action film with themes of overcoming oppression and rebelling against the machinery of life. This would be a sci-fi film. But soon, they dropped the live-action approach, probably realized it would be too crazy of of an undertaking at that time. So they moved over to animation, and they were huge fans, again, from childhood, of Leiji Matsumoto, uh, who did a bunch of animation anime and manga series as uh, and it was famous for his space operas like Space Battleship Yamato and Galaxy Express 999. Bangalter wrote the script for this film and uh, he did that with frequent Daft Punk collaborator Cedric Hervet. They worked with Leiji Matsumoto as visual supervisor and Toei did the production. Uh, Daft Punk would actually end up commuting to Tokyo almost monthly to work on this project which lasted for three years. So quite the undertaking, but the result is Interstellar 555, the story of the secret star system, and man, it is a banger. I loved it. We watched it for our study session, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We watched it for our Sunday study session and had a blast. It, I was like mad that this wasn't on my regular rotation in high school and in college when I was hanging out, being a bad kid with my bad kid friends. I just, it's an absolute marvel, beautiful spectacle. And it's got every track from Discovery on it as background in order. And it's just absolutely beautiful. And I just think it's a wonderful way to experience that album. Uh, and yeah, Jake, you, you again, kind of grew up on it a little bit, right? So watching it as a kid, you know, I was just uh, blown away by the visuals. Uh, it has a lot of uh, Reiji Matsumoto's uh, uh, kind of hallmarks. There's like the groovy disco blonde lady that's like at the center of everything. There's, uh, you know, big space battles and uh, gruff antiheroes and noble sacrifices like uh, they, you know, anime came to Europe kind of before it came to America in a big way. And shows like Captain Harlock would have been on the air in Paris when they were growing up. And so getting to take these sounds and visions and loops from their childhood and like getting to add even more of their own just like primal imagination to it is incredible. But if you rewatch it with adult eyes, it is a complete and like a total condemnation of the record industry. Totally. The Crescendals, the blue skin band of aliens that get like literally whitewashed and repackaged and mind controlled and forced to just follow the bidding of a uh, evil record producer who then turns out to be like a vampire demon who's trying to open like a portal to hell uh, that's powered by gold records. Like it very much kind of uh, lays out their entire 
uh, uh, artistic mission of kind of breaking through the stranglehold that the record industry and the labels have over artists and celebrating uh, you know, the the true vision of creativity and f- letting musicians follow their bliss without compromise. It's 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 weirdly on the nose. Um, the just the way the tracks fit with the plot, like it almost it feels if you're watching it, it almost feels like the soundtrack to the anime. Like in my head, the images are completely uh-huh. married to the songs. But like, you know, uh, the way one more time leads into the. Like uh, the the danger of the abduction in aerodynamic, the way that um, harder, better, faster, stronger has this like machinery kind of clanking. It's almost the tech. It's like the EDM equivalent of bum 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 ba na 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 da ba dum bum bum ba na 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 na. And that's like the artists getting their identities stolen and like removed and replaced by like marketing and uh, by the end, like it's. This, inc- you know, uh, when you get face to face leading into too long, it is triumphant. It is incredible. And it's 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 just I don't know. I find it so aesthetically pleasing, uh, both as an album and as an anime, as a piece of anime. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I, I it just it just shook me to my core when I was a kid. Check it out. It's all on YouTube at the end of the day. So definitely check it out. If you don't have a copy of it or have it on hand some other way, uh, you should really watch this if you haven't. I feel crazy for not having seen this thing until uh, ju- just last Sunday because it's really, really wonderful. So uh, you would think that they, you know, looking back at the, uh, Daft Punk, you're like, man, they just hit it out of the park every single time. This would actually not be so. This next bit of their career would be a sort of a downturn for them. Their uh, next album was written and recorded in six months. It was a departure from their vibrant pos- positive sound with Human After All. There is more of a focus on minimalism and improvisation on this album and had heavier guitars and electronic sounds. And they also just wanted, you know, they spent years making the last one. They wanted to bang something out. They wanted to do something on impulse, something improvised, something just a little more fresh. And, and an important element of them and and you'll see that also with Random Access Memories is like they're always looking to do something they haven't done before. Mm-hmm. They don't want to recreate anything they've done on their previous albums. They want to say, all right, now we're going to... So I think with this, they were wanted to change the process in a certain way. Bang Alter said they were, quote, definitely seduced at the time by the idea of doing the opposite of their last album, Unpolished, a stone that's unworked. He also said it was, quote, about this feeling of either fear or paranoia and not something intended to make you feel good. He also described it as, quote, extremely tormented and sad and terrifying looks at technology, but there can be some beauty and emoting from it. I love that quote because, like, you can get that image. You can get that from the album. Uh, There's, like, it's a way more repetitive than Discovery. Like, they kind of just settle on these loops and let it, like, dig into your brain a lot uh, longer than uh, you think it would be for like a pure pop sound. And yet still, despite all that techno dystopia, I remember those iPod ads where they just used uh, buy it, click it, make it, bring it, bring it, bring it, update yeah. it. Like they, it still ended up in commercials. It still ended yep. up uh, a, a commercially uh, successful bit of music despite well, and their- that, that would also be because they would end up getting some redemption on this album in the, in the live front, which we're going to get to in just a second. But I do think this has some banger tracks on it. And, and in retrospect, it is regarded as a fantastic album. Uh, April, let's hit him in the face of a little robot rock, probably the most popular track from the whole thing. 
Jake's version. Alright, now Jake, hit us with some Frank Sinatra just to switch it up. Little old blue eyes. Start spreading the news. Alright. I'm leaving today. Yeah, baby. I wanna be a I feel like I'm in Gremlins 2 right now. Am I in Gremlins 2 at this point? Or yes, we changed Holden. the episode. Ever since we've done this podcast, every day has been a Gremlins 2 with you, Holden. <laughs> I'm going to take that as a compliment. Um, so anyways, the album has was done mainly with two guitars, two drum machines, a vocoder, and an eight track. And that is quite simple for uh, an electronic music joint. This record sells a mere fraction of how Discovery would sell. And it was not well received by critics, as we've been alluding to up to this point. However, Daft Punk was still just about to set the stage for an EDM revolution. So one important key thing that I don't think we mentioned about Discovery, which is kind of crazy to me. Yeah, they got the helmets. They invented these new robot personas. They never go on tour Mm. on this crazy good album that seems to have like really good banger li- like tracks that would play well if to a live audience. They didn't tour after after homework and they they honed their chops up until Discovery touring. They they know how to tour. They know how to play live shows for sure. Uh, but they skipped over Discovery. They go make human after all. People just don't get it. And they realize they, they're ready to go back on the road with this new aesthetic. And they know that these these tracks on Human After All will play well in an actual live arena. They just know it. They, they're like, you guys don't get it. You don't like this as much right now, but wait till we bring this to you in a live show format. And so they're, they're at this point where they're like, all right, we're ready to go back on the road. Um, we're ready to do this whole, we want to like bring this whole new th- vibrant thing uh, to a live act, uh, EDM live show situation. As you mentioned before, people are turning their backs to the performer. They're, they're, it's there so they can dance to the music, and they've got some other shit in mind. But they're actually not super financially confident at this time because they are pumping their own money into everything they do. They are oh, not taking the best this, lucrative deal. Uh, they independently produced Interstellar 555. They literally paid out oh, of yeah. pocket to get that movie made, which is insane. Yeah. I'm sure if you think it, like, of course the the label pays for that shit. They, because of the nature of their deal with Virgin, they went, like, because they believed so strongly in the project, they were like, fuck it, a retro anime visual album, which is an insane decision. Insane. To yeah. pay with, with your own fucking money. And so it's really this incredible boon for them that they get the offer to play Coachella in 2006. Well, Thomas they Bang did Alters- get the offer in 2005. They did get the offer in 2004. Uh, I believe uh, there was a journalist in the documentary who said that uh, uh, they literally turned down $250,000 wow. to perform at Coachella. And when they upped the offer in 2006 to 300000 they said, sure. But something weird kept happening. Uh, Daft Punk's management kept asking for more and more of it in advance, which was unheard of at the time. Mm. And uh, it it turns out that they needed that money because they were uh, buying every available LED display panel. Yeah. A groundbreaking technology in 2005, 2006. You have to remember... Um, Nowadays, there's LED displays on, like, buildings, on your shoes, everywhere. But... They literally had to, they got all available stock in the country while they were putting together the set for Coachella. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Thomas Bangalter said the interesting thing was that Coachella was a big offer financially, and that triggered the ability to bring the show to the next level. We were ready to play again. We've never done anything for the money or tried to take economic advantage, but we have crazy ideas, and these ideas can be expensive. And that crazy idea would involve their two new robot helmet personas standing on top of a giant pyramid, as Jake said, covered in the screens with a massive light show surrounding them. Bangalter said we have 15 tons of equipment including prototypes or modified regular technology, things we've re-engineered. We built the custom pyramid. There's a lot of troubleshooting in tech and making custom computers. We work with Ableton Live, which is really at the core of the performance right now. We have the music and the lights synced up. It really makes the robots and the personas come to life. Within this universe, we've worked on for the last 12 years. Guy Manuel said, a lot of the tracks from Human After All, which has not been received well by critics and maybe not by the audience, have gotten a stronger response when we play them in the show. And uh, for some lore background leading up to this event... Uh, they also put out Daft Punk's Electroma. They put out a whole other feature film. Uh, this actually does not feature any of their own music, interestingly enough. Instead, they opted for songs from folks like Todd Rundgren, uh, Brian Eno, Curtis Mayfield, Sebastian Tellier, and more. And it tells the story of our two robot protagonists on their quest to become human. They directed it themselves, and Guy said, We didn't think too much. Whether it's making music or directing a video, whatever we do, we do it quick. When we have a good work dynamic, we don't need to ask too many questions of each other. So this show happens. I mean, it is like literally like Steve Aoki's in that documentary you've been referring to before saying like, this show changed my life. This is like why every single EDM show you see has this giant insane light show with someone usually wearing a giant mask with like digital displays on it. Looking at you, dead mouse, uh, uh, perched atop. Uh, some kind of <laughs> thronish situation, technological situation that they, they are the they, they have taken back the focus from EDM live shows. And I mean, it was a revelation. It was, you know, I, I forget who said it in the doc, but it was like, love it or hate it, this changed everything moving forward when it came to EDM and live shows. And that blew my mind. I did not realize that that... Yeah, because... And I think we've all understood that aesthetic, them and the pyramid and everything. I think we've all like known that before. Didn't know that was like the first fucking time that kind of thing went down. Yeah, like you think of a show by Tiesto or Diplo or uh, Avicii, RIP, uh, that is these like giant technological pyrotechnic 
audiovisual displays that, um, you know, because up until that point, the joke for a lot of artists was like, oh, you just stand there with a laptop or something like that. Uh, you that all of a sudden this level of showmanship, this technical display of power became an, a, a vital part of a major EDM artist's live show. It's true. I honestly had no idea that's where that started. Yeah. Same. You know, it's 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 just another weird thing. They're like, oh, yeah, Daft Punk did that. That's the yeah, whole they week were like theme. A, the whole week's theme. I thought theme. they were just a, a cool robot aesthetic thing that they created, this persona thing. I thought we were going to be like really mainly talking about that. I had no idea how much they pioneered when it came to music, when it came to even like a musical act, like creating a whole multimedia universe, uh, a musical act that takes the power for themselves. I mean, they, you know, and then, and then recording shit in your bedroom. I mean, you know, the whole, it's like mind blowing how much they actually innovated and pioneered in not just the EDM industry, but music industry as a whole, uh, which is funny because then they later with random access memories have to like respond to their pioneering of like making music in your bedroom of, you know, bring, bring, bringing EDM to like the wider audience. And they, they're like, no, now we're going to do it all analog or, or at least all with like real musicians. And like, I mean, it's just so cool. They had to like respond to their own shit in, in this way. Like that's fascinating. Yeah, the aesthetic of Random Access Memories, which we're about to get into, obviously, uh, yeah. was, you know, when they're on the Grammys, their set was a traditional recording studio. That yeah. was the novelty of that it. That was the crazy thing. They're like, wow, look, we're in like a real <laughs> recording studio, but on a stage at the Grammys. Totally. Yeah, we were commenting on that, watching that, watching that the other day. Before we get there, though, I do have to highlight uh, after Coachella, they go on tour from through 2006 and 2007. They do 48 dates all over the world do you think they pulled an mf doom a couple of times do you think there was just some ju- <laughs> like they're like i don't want to go to fucking helsinki hey, if, the, if there ain't enough in the bag you got to send the imposter all that's right what and I, that's just- they had to have at least like <laughs> it's like it's it's just the idea that they never did it seems ludicrous not that they always did it but that never once they were like where are we go albuquerque fuck albuquerque also like, I don't know the dirty deets on this, but they were asked in, in an interview, I think it was for Variety, like, what are you guys doing up there the whole time? Like, what's pre-pro, like, how much are you actually doing? And they say that, yeah, it's definitely like, there's certain pre-programming going on, but there's also, they're tweaking, they're like doing a lot of tweaking to the music. They're also able to control a decent amount of the lighting and stuff. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of playing with the whole thing, you know? And they were like, they asked them like, hey, if you wanted to make one more time play on for like eight minutes, is that possible? or is that like not a thing you could do you know extend the song Mm -hmm. out and stuff like that they're like technically we could but it's so tied to like the lighting and everything Mm -hmm. else going on on that stage show that like we probably wouldn't do that because of how much there but I think once you introduce a video component your ability to just kind of improv up there is severely limited I think it's a lot more like tweaking and playing and stuff I think they just gave themselves like a giant toy to play with and they can futz with Mm -hmm. it in all these fun ways but the the main skeleton is going to be what it is but regardless they release a, a live to 2007, which is pulled from their performance in Paris in, in uh, mid-07. And uh, I was going to say, like, if you were going to walk away being like, I definitely want to listen to some Daft Punk now, definitely throw on Discovery. And I think the other big recommendation uh, from me would be Alive 2007. Absolutely. It is 
amazing. It is such a good dude. It's I threw a it on yesterday. Album of just their own shit. It's incredible. Yeah, it's so good. I threw it on yesterday and went on a run, and um, it had been a while, so I kind of needed this to happen, dude. It just worked so well mm-hmm. for my for my run, like. As the song might slow down a little bit, or waiting for the waiting for the build to the drop, everyone knows the build. You got to build to that drop. Like I would kind of slow up a little bit. It's been a while since I've been out there, so I kind of needed to take some breaks. And then, man, every time that fucking beat dropped in, I would just go, start flying down the road, and it was so fun. Also, highly recommend throwing on some Daft Punk if you wanna if you have a, a, a little baby mm. like I do. I put uh, Winnie in the Jolly Jumper and uh, had uh, Discovery playing. Or actually, oh. no, I had a live, no, no, I had a live 1997 playing, actually, wow. so it was even oh, better. kind of a harsher mix. Which, we didn't talk about a live 1997, by the way, we glossed over that. Yeah, it's a little, it's uh, based off of their touring off of homework. Definitely check that out as well, very good. Um, but yeah, again, the build to the drop, Winnie would just kind of be like, dance a little bit, and then as <laughs> soon as that beat dropped, dude, she was bouncing on that fucking Jolly Jumper <laughs> like and she was going to fly out of it. It was so That's fun amazing. to watch. So. Yeah, I had a great... I had a really fun time. Like, I love when we do music episodes. Like, the music just invades our lives, like, unconsensually almost, like, in a certain way, you know? And I, it was well-welcomed this week. I mean, Gloria I really had fun. warned us the rhythm was going to get us. It got us, man. It got us good. It definitely got me good. So, yeah, uh, you already mentioned uh, Tron Legacy. We definitely did an episode on Tron recently. So, if you want more details on that film project, definitely check that out. But I will just say... You know, Daft Punk at this point, I think, is now considered this fixture. They've got legendary status now. Yeah, they're they're now just a huge part of EDM, already like a staple of EDM history and uh, the masters of the giant live show. And their next big project would actually be tied to the film Tron Legacy. Bangalter said, we were interested in the relationship between society and technology and how the place of technology in the world had changed so much. The first movie in 1982 was a very colorful, hopeful, naive look at technology and the power of the computer. 30 years later, this new movie would be a dark and innocent and, and not innocent look at technology. It was in common with how we feel about technology, which is the love-hate relationship with it. It can be wonderful and terrifying. All they saw was five seconds of CGI young Jeff Bridges, and they're like, oh, fuck, we gotta get a piece of this. Let's do this. Let's make out with it. buy a digital jazz, man! Like, oh, we're we're dead. Ha, ha, ha. We are a part of this movie. (laughs) All right, Fat Albert. He also said, I think Tron is a good example of minimalism. That's what we liked with the direction of the new film. It can be a huge film, but there's a lot of negative space. So there's this certain minimalistic approach that, quote, less is more feel that we appreciate artistically. Apparently, when they met with the director of Tron Legacy, it was actually more of an interrogation on the director to make sure he'd be faithful to the original film. Is there such huge fans? Because, of course, this is their fucking shit, right? The 70s, early 80s media stuff. I mean, that's what they're all about, especially a techno- technology stuff from that time. So, yeah, it was I mean, perfect. they are literally signing a deal with, like, the Disney Corporation, like, the final boss of shitty, creative, <laughs> uh, stifling corporations. So, like, they definitely... Uh, the, either the paycheck was just too good to even remotely uh, back off, or just the chance that they got kind of carte blanche to work with an orchestra for the first time which was a huge step forward for them because they never even had to consider like, you know, maybe a couple of guitarists here and there, but like incorporate all of these classical analog instruments into their composition was a uh, huge step forward and a learning experience for them. Um, 
at one point, someone from Disney was listening to the soundtrack and uh, actually their one note was, hey, can we listen to it without the electronic stuff for a little bit? And the entire room like got chills because they're like, oh, fuck, are these French guys going to like flip out on them? <laughs> and uh, they played it without the any of the uh, digital stuff. And it uh, apparently sounded horrible. So the executive was like, oh, I guess it's fine as it is. <laughs> so they started putting the music together before there was even a script. They just did it based off of early concept art. Bang Alter said, we like this idea of taking classic Hollywood scores and to try and clash it against electronics and 1970s science fiction soundtracks with a much darker feel. So Daft Punk collaborated with arranger and orchestrator Joseph uh, Trapanese and uh, features an 85-piece orchestra recorded in Lynnhurst Studios in London. And Interesting enough that this would be the thing they would do right before moving on to random access memories, working with like real instruments, a real orchestra in a space. I bet that did have some influence on what random access memories would become. Their next album, uh, they would truly, truly become human as they turned away from samples and looping and towards live musicians saying, we wanted to do what we used to do with machines and samplers. But with people, it's people, people. Not only were they like, uh, I believe one of the influences or one of the things was like, we want to work with Niles Rogers from Chic. We want to work with Giorgio Moroder while these dudes are still alive. Like we yeah. want to give them a last hurrah and we want, uh, you know, to kick off our own bucket list by getting to like work with these influences as people. Totally. Totally. Even the way that they approached this, uh, the labels and the way it was marketed, uh, they like apparently at one of their first meetings, they brought in this photo of like the old Sunset Strip. And as far as the eye can see, there were all these billboards for upcoming album releases that like music was this physical product, this thing that you had to go out and buy and that required advertising. If you know, if you remember at the time, there were ads for random access memories on TV all the time, which was like never, you know, in the 90s, maybe you like get something for like, and now pure moods from time life, like or whatever. <laughs> but like a actual TV billboard campaign for an upcoming album was kind of old fashioned at the time. They uh -huh. really were doing it in a way that nobody even did it anymore. And that was probably because everybody could now do what they were doing on homework and discovery. But uh, Bang Alter said, technology has made music accessible in a philosophically interesting way, which is great. But on the other hand, when everybody has the ability to make magic, it's like there's no more magic. If the audience can just do it in themselves, why are they going to bother? Mm -hmm. So uh, like bother with us, you know? So they knew they had to create something that could be wholly like only done done by this group who's been around for a while and has a bunch of money that they don't give a fuck about because they just pump it into their own artistic work. So they're going to do that for years and years on this project. So for these people, as you said, they brought in many of their heroes and many of the folks that they've, they're admiring uh, and have admired as they've been coming up through the music biz for the past few decades. They get chic frontman Nile Rodgers, as you mentioned, songwriter Paul Williams, which is someone they met through doing studio work. Um, he is a songwriter writer who wrote a ton of stuff like Three Dog Nights, an old-fashioned love song, wow. among, among many others. Uh, and he sings the song Touch, by the way, uh, I believe, right? Yeah, Touch. And uh, it is absolutely beautiful. And um, 
such a good job with that. I know he was talking about, they were talking about how uh, people, it, apparently um, it was either uh, Guy or Tomai, I can't remember who gave who a book about near-death experiences and coming back to life <laughs> and the importance of touch when it came to like returning to the mortal plane and like how they, p- people in that state were like obsessed with just the physical ability to touch. And that's what a lot of that song apparently is based on. Oh, uh, another thing is, uh, I'm sorry, I just have to acknowledge this because this is so key to their bullshit. <laughs> Paul Williams, the songwriter you mentioned, uh, also was a one of the star, like leading actors in Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, which we ah. weirdly enough mentioned in our Berserk episode, because okay. that's where the, uh, the, uh, the, Oh my God! Why am I drawing a blank? Holden, the spooky Birdman, uh, uh, the literally Griffith. the bad guy Griffith, where the Griffith mask was inspired from. Mm. Williams plays this kind of evil Svengali record producer in this uh, movie, which itself is also this highly wrought, overly dramatic uh, uh, condemnation of the record industry and the idea of this masked uh, character in the movie who is like in his own weird dungeon of synths and electronics, just making music uh, on his own without like compromise only to be corrupted by the uh, forces of commercial music definitely resonated super hard with these two French teenagers back in the day. So it like really like the, the how far back they're going in terms of their influences is just like, just like discovery they're reaching like primordial joy I mean, one of the furthest furthest back they go is with Giorgio Moroder, who is referred to as the father of disco and is a pioneer of electronic dance music. He tells his story, uh, the story of his life on the track Giorgio by Moroder, and it's a fascinating track. The Strokes frontman, Julian Casablancas, uh, they pulled him in for uh, which track is that? Uh, I was just looking at Instant Crush, which is fantastic. That has a music video out for that. that's very good. You've got New Jersey DJ Todd Edwards, French DJ DJ Falcon, Panda Bear from the amazing group Animal Collective, uh, who is also a great solo act on his own right, and uh, Canadian musician Chili Gonzalez, as well as Fer- Pharrell Williams. Oh, wait, of Pharrell course, Williams Pharrell Williams is probably be the most, <laughs> yeah, exactly, probably the most notable person. I just like glossed over it pretty much. Um, but it's really interesting how they would bring them in. They'd bring folks in, they'd do jam sessions, they'd record, they would record all sorts of things. According to Chili Gonzalez, they approached his session like that of a film director and an actor uh, with the actor coming in, doing their part, leaving and having no idea what this final product's going to be until they hear it, you know, as it comes out. I mean, it was one of those situations with Giorgio. They were like, just tell us your story. Oh, just let's get this recording. And then and then they applied it to the track in the way that they do. Uh, Giorgio got interviewed in the documentary Unchained. I could not find it on streaming. I had to, like, download it off a random yeah, Redditor. Like Dropbox with the subtitle file and like put it together in VLC. But uh, Giorgio, when he sat down to record, uh, he was in front of three microphones and he was like, what's this about? And uh, they explained, oh, well, uh, when you talk about the beginning of your life, we're going to record on this like era appropriate microphone that would have been around in like the 60s and 70s. And then when you talk about your like uh, getting into synths and stuff, it'll be this microphone that was around in the 80s. And then when you talk about like your later life, it'll be on this modern microphone. And Giorgio very politely is like, well, I mean, nobody will know the difference. You know, a microphone <laughs> is just a little vibrating piece of metal in front of a magnet and with some wire. Like it's not that's not going <laughs> to 
carry over to the final recording. And the engineer had to be like, but they'll know they did it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is just the amount they're indulging their like pure creative whims on this album. Very much indulging their pure creative whims. It's a great way to put it. This album is made in several different studios. Daft Punk, again, funding the whole thing themselves. So they had plenty of room for experimentation. A good example of this is they recorded an orchestral part for every single track on the album, but they only used those parts in like three of the tracks. Jesus. I mean, they are just going way overboard with everything. The sound effects throughout the album were also recorded specifically for the record. Like There's like dripping water that they recorded on a soundstage. There's a part where there's a busy <laughs> restaurant Holden, full this of is people. Very in a, this has nothing to do with the story of Daft Punk. I just have to say, uh, <laughs> I was listening to Random Access Memories on the G train uh, on my way to the studio and uh, I legit thought someone was pissing next to me when I heard the <laughs> water <laughs> that album. Uh, yeah, that, the, that busy restaurant scene, they actually got that by placing microphones in front of the forks of a table of people and having them have lively conversation. I mean, all these things they could have easily gotten without without doing all this work. They wanted to get it all just perfect, specific to themselves and, you know, it's very, like, reminds me of, like, Stanley Kubrick or someone like that. Very auteur shit put into this album specifically. The title of the album is derived from the group's obsession with the past, of course, as they're working with all these great people, um, namely music from the 70s and 80s. Bangalter said, we were drawing a parallel between the brain and the hard drive, the random way that memories are stored. Uh, they're also heavily influenced by records from the album era. Like you said, the way they promoted it even was kind of hearkening back to a certain era, the era of the album, like when people really, you know, they wanted you to like sit down, which is so funny because like every everyone probably knows this album specifically by Get Lucky and maybe like Lose, Lose Yourself, Yourself to Dance, dance right? Yeah. Like, and they think it's like, oh, that's the Get Lucky album where really their intent was we want you to sit down and listen to this thing front to back. It definitely has that quality to it. I yeah, absolutely recommend. Get Lucky comes in real late in the album. It's yeah. kind of like a like crescendo kind of like bringing it home kind of track. Their biggest influences specifically were Rumors by Fleetwood Mac, which is a phenomenal record, and Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, which, of course, makes a lot of sense by just the different like, spoken word stuff happening throughout this kind of journey they're taking you on touch, this eight minute song happening right in the middle. I mean, it's just it really does take you on such a, a ride and almost all of it real instruments. I think the only time there's electronic stuff happening is in that final track, Contact. I think that's the only one. Everything. It's real people, real instruments, real voices. It's it's really amazing stuff. And um, little did we know it would be their swan song album. I consider Starboy by The Weeknd to be their swan song. That's, <laughs> yes, they do end up uh, throwing out Starboy and I Feel It Coming, um, working with The Weeknd. They also um, did a lot of production stuff on Kanye West's uh, Yeezus album. They did Black Skinhead. They did I Am A God. They did the biggest tracks on that album, um, which is highly acclaimed. But yes, uh, very unexpectedly, they released a video Video on their YouTube channel titled Epilogue on February 22nd, 2021. And it features a scene from their 2006 film Electroma, which shows one robot exploding while the other walks away. 
And then a card pops up that reads 1993 to 2021 with the pyramid symbol being done by the two gold and silver gloved hands. uh, And their song Touch plays in the background. And it was later confirmed by their publicist that they had indeed split up with no reason given. And I don't know uh, if we'll ever know other than I I hope it it wasn't by some horrible drama or, or falling out. I really do hope it was them just being absolutely absolute uh absolutely in control of their destiny mm-hmm. and just knowing exactly when they were ready to be done and saying that's it it's also but who knows? we live in an era where like i don't think i don't believe any band truly breaks up because like I, I always feel like a farewell tour i always feel is so and retiring from music is so ridiculous to me because a it almost never happens they always come back right i think it's just breaking up is but just b, short like, yeah you re- yeah there's no retiring from music i mean you can play music until the day you die so i don't really we're not understand making why. a new album don't yell at us that's yeah what. yeah it's really it's all it is like don't harass us for a new album at least until we like blow your brains open with some kind of new thing but i i do hope that they still have a decent relationship with each other and that uh you know that that uh this wasn't some awful scenario for them because i really do think that the work they've done is beautiful and that the they're they're just their fucking obviously their their sauce the secret to their sauce is like uh, it's unbelievable man the synergy is unbelievable I guess and notice I that we did not talk about any personal stuff we did not you know we I don't know if no. they one of them went through a messy divorce I don't know if one of them got arrested for drunken misconduct I don't I know I will say I do believe Guy uh, is sober now and did struggle with a lot of uh, substance abuse issues for a little while no. I'm pretty sure I saw that uh Besides that, I didn't really look into it. Because it, it's not the story. It's not them. I, I, Guy and Tomat, they're able to give me insights into how they perf- made stuff happen on the live stage or on the recording. But they're separate to these two robots that I wanted to talk about today yeah. called Daft Punk. And that's the magic. <laughs> and that's the magic. And I respect that. And um, I respect them immensely after doing this episode. I mean, talk about... Uh, a story where you just walk away from it being like, oh my God, now when I listen to this music, I mean, it's so much fuller to me. It's so much, there's so much more dynamic and interesting just knowing uh, how these guys made it happen. I just, I could only, I, I could only wish to create stuff with uh, the level of artistic integrity that they were able to create it with for decades. I mean, it's unbelievable. Hold on, before you uh, finish that thought, let me just say that uh, this episode is sponsored by Bubble Game Shadow Legends. That's right. Uh, Use the promo code WizBrew <laughs> and get over 15 lollipop points to get you started. And uh, yes, every time you beat the game, you will receive some cryptocurrency. So uh, oh, definitely I'll, check of that course, out. How did we get this far without mentioning WizBrew coin? <laughs> <laughs> Wizcoin. Wizcoin. Uh, yeah, very excited about Wizcoin. It's going really well out there. It's not tanking, okay? So fucking buy some, all right? The whole market's not falling apart before our very eyes, okay, fuckers? Uh, no, but thank you so much for listening to our episode on Daft Punk. I hope you enjoyed it. I mean, I cannot recommend going back and checking out, especially Discovery Alive 2007 and Random Access Memories uh, enough. Definitely, hey, give yourself a treat today. Check out those albums. You're saying it's your official prescription to lose yourself to dance. Yes, I would say so. Get bouncing like a one-year-old in a little springy chair. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, why don't we play uh, play us out maybe April with some touch? And uh, before that, let's do our little pluggy plugs here. First of all, have to say it. It's very important. I've been seeing some new patrons popping in a lot last couple days. Uh, I think it's getting hot over there. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We do bonus episodes every week for $5 a month. And for $15 a month, you can join us for our Sunday study session. We watched that Interstellar anime this last time. We watched a bunch of music videos and just had a blast jamming out to some Daft Punk, so check us out over there. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Check me out. Twitch.tv forward slash holdenatures ho. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, Friday streams. Love seeing whizbrew folks pop in for the first time to say what's up. Again, that is twitch.tv forward slash holdenatures ho. Jake! Hey, uh, follow me on Twitter at bestjakeyoung and, uh, you know, I also do a Twitch thing. It's called Puppet Jared. It's a VTuber project. And uh, the flagship stream over there is the uh, Thursday Cartoon Dumpster. That's right, the Cartoon Dumpster. Imagine your favorite Saturday morning uh, cartoon block mixed with Mystery Science Theater 3000. It's a lot like that. Uh, We have a ton of fun. The community over there is funny and knowledgeable. And there are truly some uh, animated oddities that will burn themselves into your brain if you uh, watch along with us. Uh, just, uh, I think if this uh, this episode releases like I think it will, the one year anniversary stream is going to uh, happen on July fourteenth, nice. seven p.m. Eastern time. We're going to have guests. We're going to rewatch some fan favorite episodes, the true moments of shock and horror that have scarred uh, hundreds of uh, puppet heads along with me. So uh, if you've been if you've been weirdly curious, and every time I stream, someone is like, "All right, I finally gave in. I watched, and yeah, it's great." I guess you win. Here's a sub. Ugh. You know, I can I can hear their voice through the chat. <laughs> Now's a good a time as any. The 14th Thursday cartoon dumpster. Check me out there. All right. Uh, I guess that's it. Enjoy some touch. Uh, until next time, always remember, never stop bruising. Whiz it, bruise it, swick it, bap it, boop it, bap it. <laughs> never stop whizzing. <laughs> I'll not miss these songs you've sung to me today. Boop, 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 boop. <laughs> now you're just making boop noises. Boop, All right, we're getting out of here. Boop, 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 boop. <laughs> Kiss suddenly alive. Happiness arrive. Hunger like a storm. How do I begin? A room within a room. A door behind a door. Touch, where do you lead? I need something more Tell me what you see I need something more This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. 
For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.